BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to this special live edition of the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep up on what's happening in China with a daily email newsletter, a smartphone app, and at the website SupChina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined here at UC Irvine in the great California Republic. Uh, and of course, the California public is where Jeremy and I are getting ready to move once you all get it together and actually affect secession. <laughs> so please hurry. Uh, we are absolutely thrilled to be joined today by one of the giants among China watchers, Susan Shirk. Professor Shirk has had a distinguished career both in diplomacy and in academia. She was Assistant Deputy Secretary of State during the Clinton administration and is author of a number of highly influential books on China. She now teaches at UC San Diego's prestigious School of Global Policy and Strategy, or GPS as it's known, and she heads the UCSD 21st Century China Center. Susan Shirk, it's wonderful to see you again, and thanks so much for taking the time to join us here in Irvine. Well, my pleasure. Good to be here. So a very happy year of the rooster to all of you. And uh, let's all get started here, as there's so much to talk about. So, Susan, in, in 2008, which was perhaps the height of global admiration for the achievements of the Chinese government and foreign invest enthusiasm for the country, you published a book called Fragile Superpower, How China's Internal Politics Could Derail Its Peaceful Rise. And the book takes a sober look at the many problems facing the Communist Party. I think the subtitle makes it clear that many of the big issues facing the ruling party are internal and domestic, ranging from how the state can keep control of the passions of patriotic youth to the possibility of irrational responses to international crises if there is a perceived loss of face. Your book points out the paradox that the more developed and prosperous the country becomes, the more insecure and threatened the Chinese leadership seems to feel. But the Chinese Communist Party and the government uh, look somewhat different today from 2008. Although abroad some of the gloss of the Chinese miracle seems to have faded to mass, Xi Jinping's party is very different from what China looked like under Hu Jintao in 2008, the year your book was published. 2008 also seemed to be the end of the strategy of hiding your strength and biding your time. Uh, Xi Jinping has put an end to that notion. A long introduction to question, how much has changed since you wrote the book in 2008? Well, certainly Chinese foreign policy has changed. Uh, when I wrote China fragile superpower, there was one contingency, one scenario for a direct military confrontation between the United States and China, which would be a Taiwan Strait conflict. Now there are at least three, including South China Sea and a violent collapse of North Korea. So I see the risk of war between U.S. and China has increased. Uh, domestically, there definitely are significant changes under Xi Jinping in terms of greater concentration of power in the hands of the leader. 
and not so much a collective leadership. And I think that does matter. We can talk about that. But I think the fundamental fragility of the system and the insecurity of Communist Party leaders has only increased. I can say a little bit more about why that is, if you'd like. Please, would you? So, well, first of all, the economic problems are acute, and growth is slowing down. Some of that was inevitable. You cannot sustain double-digit growth in any economy for more than 30 years, really. And China went beyond that by the massive stimulus after the global financial crisis. But, you know, labor costs have gone up, and the demographics of the size of the working age population as compared to older people or children, you know, we don't have this sweet spot of 70% of the population being working age anymore. So that helps explain why the cost of labor has gone up and why China was going to slow down no matter what. So slower growth, then the challenge of how do you keep people's livelihood improving, big challenge, management of the macro, the China's mixed economy, which is part plan still, or part government control and part market. Look at the uh, stock market, fiasco, control of the renminbi, all sorts of economic problems, capital flight, huge debt. So from the standpoint, if you're China's leaders, you know, you're really worried about this stuff and you're worried that it could trigger some kind of mass discontent that could bring down the Communist Party. So that part is all the more acute. Secondly, the whole way Xi Jinping is ruling, he's setting himself up for a potential backlash from the elite, not just from the public, because of the anti-corruption campaign being used to destroy rivals the way he's done. And this year, before the 19th Party Congress is really a critical year when there could be that kind of backlash. So I'd say his sense of insecurity has got to be more acute than Hu Jintao's or or Jiang Zemin's. Susan, uh, around the time that you published Fragile Superpower, uh, you quoted a reaction that you often got from people when you told them the title of the book, uh, that when you told Americans that you were working on a book called Fragile Superpower about China, they heard it and said, fragile? And when Chinese heard it, uh, they would say, superpower? You know, with the same sort of incredulousness. <laughs> now, one might be forgiven the assumption that if you were to, to, to elicit similar reactions today, they'd be precisely reversed, that Americans who have read constantly about the kind of economic fragility that you were just talking about, uh, reading about the imminent collapse uh, and seeing the sort of increasingly illiberal behavior of China, of Beijing under Xi Jinping as a kind of sign of fragility, while at the same time, Chinese seem to have felt a, a, a swagger and a confidence and a sort of rightful assertion to you know, a sense that they are uh, in, entitled to superpower status these days. Um, is that your sense? Do you think that, that maybe since 2008, things have very much reversed? <laughs> well, I wouldn't agree with that completely, but it's definitely true that after the global financial crisis, the prestige and soft power of the American system 
was very much diminished all around the world, including China. And at the same time, because after all, we did trigger the crisis, failures of our own regulatory system. And, and of course, our democracy doesn't look too good these days and hasn't looked too good for quite a few years because of the gridlock in Washington, the high degree of partisanship, you know, a sense that things were not working. And in China, after the global financial crisis, China, which had not been as severely impacted as other countries because it's not a completely open economy to the world, but they uh, threw massive amounts of money, the government did, into through the banks or through government spending or through allowing all sorts of um, irregular types of loans, so a massive stimulus. Therefore, China recovered first, and that definitely created a kind of triumphalism mm-hmm. uh, in the party leaders and also the public that, yeah, we're China's doing great, and we don't have to be so polite to other countries anymore. We can say what we think. We can have a more muscular foreign policy. So uh, some of the things that happened, especially, I would say, the South China Sea assertiveness, I think are at least in part the direct result of that kind of triumphalism. Mm -hmm. But do Americans not think of China as so powerful? I think we increasingly see China as a serious economic and security threat to the United States. So I don't think there's a focus on the fragility I don't think there's enough attention to that, actually. So I think um, we still see China as we're kind of envious. We think, oh, gee, China's leaders just say, we need to do this, and it happens. And we think, oh, you know, uh, that's a lot more efficient and effective than our messy democracy. But in fact, of course, it's not the case that China's leaders just say, we need to do this, and it automatically happens. They also have a lot of complex, pluralistic interest group and regional politics that um, interfere with the smooth implementation of their policies. Um, We've come this far without asking you directly about Donald Trump, but I'm afraid um, I'm going (laughs) to have to go there. (laughs) What have we been able to discern, if anything at all, about Donald Trump's actual policies towards China? Well, all we know really is what he and his associates have said during the campaign and during the transition. And, you know, that is... What he has said is very worrisome because it's extremely radical. Extremely radical, uh, and we, we have to unpack this and talk about the specifics related to Taiwan, uh, related to trade across-the-board trade sanctions, related to uh, interfering in the South China Sea, you know, so our military should prevent China from occupying 
land features that they have expanded, but that they have had effective control over for a long time. So all of these things seem extremely impractical, radical, and quite dangerous. But I sort of try to talk a little bit, not so much about them in the hopes that maybe they back away from them. You know, uh, maybe these people misspoke and now that you have to really have the responsibility for U.S. national security and economic security, they're going to modify them. So I'm not really sure where the policy will go, but what we've seen so far would be, I think, um, very detrimental to American security. Now, having said that, I think that no matter who was president, we would be having a debate now about what's the best U.S. approach to China because yeah. things are not working as well as they had, say, before 2008. But uh, so I, I'd say that we definitely need to make some adjustments to the overall approach that Republicans and Democrats have pursued ever since the Nixon administration. But we need to be smart about how we do that and not just um, trash, trash the entire relationship in a way that would be very damaging to U.S. interests. So, Susan, we're in Irvine right now, which is home, of course, to Trump's new trade czar, uh, Peter Navarro. I can almost feel his dark, malevolent presence here in this room. Are you personally acquainted with, with Peter Navarro, and have you ever read his books? Yeah, I've... I've um I knew him slightly when he lived in San Diego, you know, and uh, he, uh, I think he taught a few courses at UC San Diego before he came here to Irvine. And he also um, ran for several public offices. Right, 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 right. He was an aspiring politician. So um, I just know him slightly. And of course, I'm familiar with his work. Right. And so how worrisome is it that he's actually now in a position where he has Trump's ear on these trade issues? Extremely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, a lot of nodding in the audience. <laughs> what is your sense, Susan, of how Beijing is calibrating its response to the Trump administration? The way it looks to me is they're sort of doing the same thing I was just suggesting that I'm doing, which is hoping against hope that they smarten up and therefore taking a fairly low-key approach to criticizing, I mean, extremely low-key, like censoring all public criticism of Donald Trump, because uh, the president has shown that he pays attention to people's criticism of him, and then he goes out to destroy you and ridicule you. Let's let's dig in a little bit about this this business about the Chinese government now having censored any uh, sort of unofficial commentary about the Trump administration and about the person of Donald Trump. Uh, what do you suppose is behind this? Well, they want to control the message, right? And they don't want some broadside against Trump or personal criticism of him to interfere with their efforts to probably try to stabilize the relationship. Well, it's, it's significant here because I think that they've used that in the past so that they could say, look, our public is, is clamoring for us to take a stronger line on this, uh, these voices mm. in, in public opinion. And they mm-hmm. seem to have taken that off the table now. 
uh, well, what can we what can we conclude from that? They want maximum latitude in their diplomatic negotiation, mm, right. so they do not want to be constrained by public pressure, public voices, and they probably worry that you know, any kind of compromise they make later on, although I don't expect any compromise on Taiwan, you know, but um, that it will, uh, could trigger some mass upheaval. If people are upset about other domestic complaints, they can add to this their criticism of the leader of being too weak in the face of outside pressure. But, of course, so far at least, it looks like he overcompensates for that by taking an overly tough line, certainly on maritime sovereignty disputes, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in order to appease the nationalist public. Uh, So what should we be looking for then? I mean, so this is is definitely, I would call this one clue as to how Beijing is going to calibrate its response uh, this 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 control of the media, but what else should we be looking for if we want to understand how Beijing is going to respond to the things that Trump and Tillerson have threatened? What indicators would you look for as a seasoned China watcher and diplomat to tell us, you know, whether we have crossed a line or how China is going to react? Well, um, I would guess that on the economic issues. Uh, there would be good reason to try to negotiate effectively a better, uh, more reciprocal, fairer treatment of the two sides in the economic relationship because that's very much off balance today. And, you know, that's really significant because especially our big multinational corporations, which used to be a major constituency for our efforts to engage China, work constructively with China, are now very disaffected because they feel they're being discriminated against in the China market. And then, of course, uh, workers and blue-collar voters in the United States are believe that China is the reason that their jobs are disappearing. So, What we really need is a whole set of economic understandings between the two sides that should be based, for example, on the bilateral investment treaty that we've been negotiating for about five years so that our companies get fairer treatment in China and we can use as leverage this intense desire of Chinese firms to invest in the United States. But we want to do all this in a way that doesn't lead to a trade war that reinforces the economic reformers in China. Because there are these folks who are very frustrated that the third plenum agenda of market reform that Xi Jinping introduced has not been carried out. State-owned enterprise reform has not been carried out. Uh, No fiscal reform is in place. So there's a lot of um, things that need to be done in China. If somehow through smart negotiating, not 
broadside across the board tariffs or punitive actions, but smart negotiating, we can get back in a more balanced economic relationship. That would help a lot. And frankly, that is something I think the Chinese government should be able to do. Sure. I think we all agree with that. What I'm really asking, though, is is what should we be looking for as, as in terms of signs of how China intends to respond? I mean, I, I studied under Alan Whiting ages ago, and he wrote that really seminal book, China Crosses the Yalu, which is sort of about <laughs> misreading of Chinese intention. Mm. Uh, we're, we're on the eve of a serious security crisis right now, and we ought maybe to be thinking about how better to understand the signals that are coming out of Beijing. And I, I wanted to sort of tap into your experience on what, what should we be looking for? It's hard well, to gauge Well, right um, I mean, for example, in South China Sea, mm-hmm. one crucial thing that the United States does not want to see happen, regardless of who is president, was uh, Chinese building up of Scarborough Shoal which is right off the coast of the Philippines. They took it from the Philippines just a few years ago. If they start expanding it, creating a bigger artificial island, putting military equipment on Scarborough Shoal, that is so close to the Philippines, which is our ally. And that would be a highly provocative step. Um, On the other hand... What I, we, I mean, we should see is China negotiating very actively both bilateral agreements with the Philippines and Vietnam, which, by the way, this is all in U.S. interests. I'm all in favor of that. And also a uh, code of conduct with the Southeast Asian countries on the South China Sea. I mean, if you have... Um, a, a radical president who's saying very provocative things and you think there's a real risk of a military confrontation with the United States and the South China Sea, you know, if I'm Xi Jinping, I try to stabilize the situation. So, uh, and there are ways that he can do that. On the other hand, if he goes into Scarborough Shoal, which, by the way, the Chinese public is not lusting after Scarborough Shoal. Sure. I mean, I don't feel he's pressured to do that. That would be a costly signal of resolve on his part, which would suggest that we've got two radical extremists on the two sides, and we're in big trouble. Susan, you're one of the co-organizers and a member of a new task force on U.S.-China policy that your 21st Century China Center and the Asia Society Center on U.S.-China Relations have put together. And uh, I understand you'll be releasing your first report on February the 7th. Can you tell us about the task force, some of the very prominent individuals on it, and maybe you could give us a bit of a preview of what to expect in the first report? Well... I wanted to create this task force for quite some time because I personally was really worried about where U.S.-China relations were going uh, over the past few years. And it looked to me like we were really headed for a real strategic rivalry in Asia that on Xi Jinping's 
side, he was talking a lot about the value differences and kind of creating a new ideological Cold War, uh, making it hard for our academics and journalists who are critical of China to get visas, the NGO, foreign NGO law, putting new barriers between our societies in ways that could be very dangerous. As I said before, businesses were very unhappy about the discrimination they face in the China market, all of these things. It seemed pretty clear that we were in a kind of downward spiral that we really needed to stop and re-examine the way our overall approach to China and did we need to revise it. So my colleague Orville Schell at the U.S.-China Relations Center at uh, Asia Society and I decided to put the, the people in the China field we most respect in terms of their judgment, their experience, many of them ser having served in government, and their knowledge of China, to think out over the, and we've been doing this over the past 18 months. So it's been a, an amazing learning experience for me. It does include people like Jim Steinberg, who had been Deputy Secretary of State, Kurt Campbell, Assistant Secretary, Evan Medeiros, Senior Director of the National Security Council, Tom Christensen, who also was Deputy Assistant Secretary of State. Carl um, Eikenberry. Carl Eikenberry, who was Ambassador to Afghanistan, but is a great China hand. Yeah, who, speaks good Chinese. Huh? Great Chinese Army General, who is a China Area Officer. You know, David Shambaugh, Liz Economy from the Council on Foreign Relations, Melanie Hart. We we want we especially want to include some younger right. experts too, not just all gray-haired folks. Um, although I don't have one gray hair, not you one, know. Not one. I, I, um, that's duly noted. Yes, uh, but uh, so Melanie Hart, uh, Taylor Fravel, who is our leading expert on the territorial dispute. So, anyway, it was a fabulous group. I learned a lot from all these people, and you know, I think we came away thinking that our basic approach to China which is to try to, we call it, some people call it engagement plus a hedge. I don't like that. <laughs> we have a longer title uh, phrase that probably is equally incomprehensible, which is engagement from a principled position of strength, which means that basically we're trying to find ways to cooperate with China and put, I think I'd say put a floor on the relationship to prevent war and to find ways that the two countries can work together, particularly on global problems of common concern, like nonproliferation in Iran, like climate change, like epidemics, health threats. And, you know, if our two countries can work together, then we can lead the rest of the world, really, Sounds in like solving problems. A lot of cooperation on those from the president. Huh? <laughs> No, but I mean, we have managed to cooperate very well. So our pro up until now. Right. So let's see how it goes. But you know, um, you wouldn't want to throw that away. That's really very, very valuable. And secondly, you know, China has emerged into the world. I think the U.S. really 
was the greatest sponsor of China's rise as a responsible power. You know, economic reform, market reform, economic integration into the world. I give, of course, most of the credit belongs to Chinese decision makers and Chinese people, but the U.S. policy created the uh, encouragement and opening for that to happen. All that has been really, really good for the whole world, uh, as well as people in our two countries. But in some really critical areas, U.S. interests were being very negatively impacted by China's policies. And we needed to find ways of pushing back more effectively. So, um, you know, that's what we struggled with. And it's not easy nowadays for two big reasons. A, China has so much influence and clout, economic clout, you know, so that it can, and we've seen it's willing to, the government is willing to use China's market power to punish countries that do things it doesn't like, like even Norway, because of the Nobel Prize, Peace Prize for Liu Xiaobo, a uh, great democratic uh, political critic who's in jail in China, Uh, the Philippines for taking the South China Sea case to the International Tribunal for Arbitration, uh, to um, even the UK when the prime minister met with the Dalai Lama. They froze him out for a year, more than a year, until they came crawling back. So Crawley did. (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean, we, you know... uh, I I think the Trump administration has a very exaggerated sense of what America can do to China without any appreciation of what China can do to America. And then a related change is that our two economies are so interdependent that if we want to pressure China to change its policy in some way by using some economic leverage, it's going to hurt us, too. There are going to be people in the United States who are hurt. And we don't want to destabilize the Chinese economy. I mean, the whole global economic stability depends, you know, greatly on uh, smooth economic development in China that when you saw with the um, with the stock market fiasco, how markets all over the world were, uh, you know, impacted by that. So it's a re- it's an incredibly tough policy problem to think out. And I urge all faculty members everywhere to give this problem to their students to just think about how do you really influence China's choices in a smart and focused way. Right. Uh, it's, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. So that's what we've been struggling with for 18 months. So Susan, Beijing was, by all accounts, gearing up for, I mean, as the rest of us were, for a Hillary Clinton victory and not for a Donald Trump victory. Uh, and they assumed that you know hers would have been a continuation of sort of liberal interventionist policies as they would they would they would describe them. 
uh, that she would have continued to support Japan on the Senkaku Diaoyu dispute, that she would have uh, support, supported sort of a more assertive policy, you know, more phone ops operations in the South China Sea, that she would have uh, probably continued to hit hard on treatment of minority nationalities and on, on broader human rights issues. Um, and I, I think they've had to really kind of rethink U.S. relations uh, in the, you know, after after November 8th. What what is going through Beijing's mind right now as it reels and deals with this this uh, Trump victory? Do you, do you have some insight into what Beijing is thinking? I really don't. Okay. I haven't been to China since the election, uh, I see. so it's purely speculative. But from reading from reading the tea leaves as one does from from over here, uh, do you get some well? Sense I think of- you know, as you note earlier. They had this idea that Donald Trump would be good for China, better than Hillary Clinton, because he's a businessman. And as you know, in China, successful businessmen are really lionized. Those are the heroes of China today, to a certain extent. Um, And they thought, well, this is a guy who knows how to negotiate, how to strike a deal. And uh, won't bother us with pesky human rights issues. Yeah, probably that. And probably and, that he would extrapolate, they extrapolated from his apparent willingness to diminish our commitments to NATO and to accept the fait accompli in, in Crimea. I don't, I don't know that at the public level they pay too much attention to that. They just thought he's a businessman and no, I'm, I'm not talking he's about not the Hillary. Public, I'm talking about Hillary. the elites Lead, elite. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. China's actually been really careful about necessarily supporting Russia and Ukraine and things like that because this is, um, you know, violations of sovereignty. Right. You know, so I don't think they've been really cheerleaders no, they have, for they all of been. Russian no, behavior, frankly. Been. Yeah. They're not, China is not Russia. So, um, and they have very different interests, actually. So, I, I mean, I think they're just thrown for a loop like all of us are. And they're trying to figure out um, how to manage this in a way that uh, serves their perceived interests. Susan, um, Xi Jinping's Davos speech, uh, a lot of people looked at that and saw it as a, you know, a sign of a changing of the guard. So Xi Jinping was talking about, uh, you know, trade, free trade, globalization, open markets. But of course, uh, there are huge swathes of the Chinese economy that are still very much closed to uh, foreign investors. Um, what are China's actual prospects as a standard bearer for economic globalization? And how open do you think the Chinese economy actually is? Well, it's certainly not nearly as open as the U.S. economy, for sure. I'll tell you, when I saw Xi Jinping at Davos saying all these great words about the global trade system and open economies and the fact that he felt that it was in his domestic political interest to do that, that he got prestige, status, national pride was wrapped up with it. I was thrilled. I And I, as someone who served in government and worked on U.S. policy toward China, I felt some small sense of accomplishment, you know, that we had created a context in which Chinese leaders benefit from stepping forward as responsible powers to lead the world in this 
in a positive way. That's great. That's what we want. You know, China's ambitions are here to stay. You know, China is a really important country. I want China to play a really active role in the world. That is good for the United States. I don't see this as uh, just a fight as to who's going to be number one. What, but we want it to be in a way that creates public goods for the whole world and respects other countries' interests in line with international law and norms. And that's all those nice words were what he was saying. And words matter. I mean, I think we, you've articulated what I felt, the same, the very same feeling that, listen, I mean, now they are, we're, we're reading off of the same, from the same hymn book. I mean, we are now. That's great. Right. This is, this is acceptance of this international system that the U.S. very much helped to create. So we should be happy they're talking the talk, even if they're not actually walking the walk. That's right. Yes. I mean, and then, the talk leads the walk. And you know, this gap, this dissonance between what is actually happening domestically and what the international rhetoric is, you know, it hopefully sort of brings the domestic situation closer to the international rhetoric. You know, because people can use what he said also, the advocates of domestic reform. That's right. I think Jeremy and I are going to argue about this later, I can tell. (laughs) (laughs) uh, So, um, Yan Xuetong, who is the dean of the Institute of the Modern International Relations uh, Department at Tsinghua University, had an op-ed in last week's New York Times, I don't know if you saw it, in which he said that confrontation is going to continue to characterize the bilateral relationship for for some time to come. I mean, to be fair, he's been saying this for some time now. I was about to say that. Uh, that these two competing national visions uh, make America great again and the, the great rejuvenation of the, the Chinese nation are essentially a zero sum. Uh, the, the only one can come only at the expense or the, the deprivation of the other. Uh, do, you, do you agree with this? I see that you do not. <laughs> I do not agree with <laughs> right. that. Good, good, I good. mean... I don't believe that war between China and the United States is inevitable. You know, there are certain IR theories to which Yen Shui-tung, you know, uh, accepts and uh, works in that realist mode. And so he believes, like Mearsheimer, that this conflict is only a matter of time. But actually, I believe that The interdependence between the two countries, economic interests are really more common than conflictual, that that smart statesmanship matters, diplomacy matters, and that this can be worked out. That last bit is a little worrisome after the gutting of the State Department. Look, 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 I'm I'm not talking about the Trump administration. (laughs) I'm hoping hoping that Congress— and the public, and the media, and the judicial branch. You know, we do have a lot of checks and balances in the United States, and I hope that they're able to uh, restrain some of the more radical actions. But I have to say, I have this weird feeling watching the Trump administration as a China specialist so much of what he seems to be doing is reminiscent of authoritarian countries like China. Right. Like the whole reconstituting of the Principles Committee of the National Security Council. Well, that's what they do in China all the time. Xi Jinping has done that to centralize power. You decide who's going to sit around the table in order to skew the outcome in the direction you want it to go. 
and the intimidation of our companies to bring jobs back, and they are all scurrying to kind of try to appease him and bandwagon on it, that looks so reminiscent of economies like China's economy and authoritarian politics, where people bandwagon uh, for their own interests on the decisions of the leaders. So it's practically every day China's looking, I mean, the United States is looking more and more like China, which is very disturbing. Yeah, me. I know. It's, I, I think it's my fault. You know, I've never lived in a, uh, a country that isn't authoritarian. And you, the you year did after. very briefly for, for the <laughs> year 2015, year. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, it is astonishingly similar also to apartheid era South Africa. It's very frightening. Um, Susan, in the same uh, Yen Shetong op-ed that Kaiser mentioned, he talks of the possibility of China ending its long-standing policy of avoiding military alliances and proposes bilateral relationships with, uh, he especially lists Cambodia, Thailand, Malaysia, and the Philippines uh, that would make it much more difficult for the U.S. to join a war in the Taiwan Strait. And he also proposes that as uh, Trump creates an illiberal environment um, and makes immigration more difficult, that China might benefit if it opened up its immigration policies. <laughs> now, the, 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 what's your take on these two things? I mean, the alliances bit seemed to me possible, but I just can't see China opening, opening up immigration right. in any meaningful way. What, do you, what, what he means what, to ask is, what's, what do you think that Yan Xuetong is smoking? <laughs> well, no, I, I give him credit for creative thinking. Okay. Um, but on alliances, I think we should expect China to be much more globally active on every continent And I think you'll see military bases. I think you'll see the People's Liberation Army and arms sales to countries in order to cultivate relationships with them. This, uh, and possibly alliances. And I don't think this in and of itself is negative from U.S. perspective. I don't think it needs, you know, a certain amount of diplomatic competition, economic competition. This is inevitable and it's manageable. It's no, you know, it'll keep us uh, on our game. Mm. And it probably, it could be welcomed by other countries that will get more attention from us where we've neglected them in the past and or mishandled our relationships with them in the past. So all I'm saying is, We should be prepared for this. We shouldn't be overly alarmed. And it's legitimate activity on the the part of a big, important country like China. And it needn't be hostile, directly hostile to the United States. Not all competition is hostile. So Susan, uh, the idea that China has in recent years, maybe some people who date it to between 2009 and 2011, has taken a, a markedly illiberal turn. That is not very much in dispute. Most people would sort of agree that China has taken a, a quite uh, a noticeable turn. Domestically. Domestically and also in, you know, in a more assertive foreign policy as well, regionally at least. But let's, let's, let's stick with domestically. I think what people don't agree on uh, one is what caused this to happen, and and the second 
is whether this is just a temporary retrenchment or whether this is a new normal that we're going to face for, for many years to come. I'd like your take on these two these two questions. So first on what caused. Okay, well, I've thought long and hard about this. I have actually have a lot of things I've, I've written about this that are not published uh, that I plan to publish. Uh, I think there are three major reasons for this U-turn that China made around 2008, 2009, both domestically and in a more aggressive foreign policy. One is we've already talked about is the global financial crisis, the fact China recovered first, and the swagger, right? the, the, the sense of triumphalism, right. and the domestic demand for a more assertive foreign policy from both the elite and the public in China. Secondly, and this is really kind of paradoxical, Hu Jintao was a relatively weak leader and China was being run by a collective leadership. And he failed to restrain different interest groups that saw that they could uh, capitalize, say, on these maritime sovereignty disputes to get bigger budgets and more power bureaucratically. And we really see that with the South China Sea. South China Sea was not a big focal point of popular nationalism before then. It was hardly talked about at all compared to, say, Japan or Taiwan. But Hu Jintao did not restrain all these different bureaucratic interests. And similarly... You're talking about Sinuk and and, and a lot of... I'm, I'm talking about even not that powerful organizations like fisheries right. or Hainan Island or the petroleum people. This is the, the or, nine dragon story. Yes, up the exactly. Nine yeah. dragon story. So, um, but what people don't seem to realize is the same thing happened domestically oh. on Weiwen, on kind of cracking down on security threats. And of course, this is the whole Zhou Yun Kong story of a security czar who kind of went his own way in overreaching in terms of the crackdown on domestic security. So it's kind of the way China worked this collective leadership under Hu Jintao. Because I think a lot of people blame this all on Xi Jinping, but it started before Xi Jinping. And then the the third reason is this massive stimulus to recover from the financial crisis also led to a new resurgence of state-owned enterprises and the state role in the economy. So there's a political economy piece to this U-turn because China's reforms for quite a few decades were mostly about decentralizing managerial authority, fiscal authority down to enterprises, local governments. So you didn't have privatization per se, but you had more competition and more decentralization. After 1994, state-owned enterprise reform, uh, fiscal reform, and Zhurongji state-owned enterprise reform, those state-owned enterprises were sort of ready to go, and you have this state-led industrial policy focused on state-owned enterprises and well-connected private enterprises. That looks very different from what you had in the 80s, the 90s, even the 2000s. And that 
uh, those interest groups and that sense that the state-owned enterprises are, I mean, Xi Jinping now thinks they're the economic base of Communist Party rule. So that also contributes to this illiberal U-turn uh, domestically and internationally. These, this is very original thinking. I haven't actually heard any of these particular theories put forward. Um, and it's re- something I... Are we going to see this in print sometime? I hope you're, so. You're I mean, this is... a uh, article coming out soon. Yeah, yeah, but this analysis of the turning point and why it happened is something that I will write about in another Good. I mean, I, I see it missing from so many analyses. On a related question, Susan, you know, Kaiser's got this pet theory uh, about what he calls the new truculence from Beijing, the the, the swagger internationally. Um, but also and, the domestically. And, well, domestically you know, insecure, but the swagger's international. So one of Kaiser's favorite theories of the last year or so is to blame a lot of the new truculence on the fact that Beijing perceives itself at risk from American attempts to engineer some kind of Arab Spring or or regime change. Um, And we argue about it because I I don't see it the same way that Kaiser does. I I think that may be one factor, but I I I only see it as one factor, but a large one. But you see it as a huge one, and I tend to discount it. Uh, What what do you think, Susan? No, I think, you know, when I talk about domestic insecurity, I think that part of that is the color revolution and the fall of the Soviet Union. I mean, Xi Jinping is pretty transparent. You know, he comes into office and he right away within, what, the first few months even, starts talking about the fall of the Soviet Union and the uh, the disloyalty of the military and by implication party members as That's well, right. and that they didn't stand behind the regime. And I think he is very afraid that uh, the party and the military was not sufficiently loyal to Communist Party rule and to him personally. And so much of what he's done during the time he's in power is about this fear of insufficient loyalty. Uh, And I think it is related to the color revolution fear that somehow uh, the values, the appeal of universal values, Western values, constitutionalism, and as promoted by U.S. policy and Western policy, could subvert loyalty to Communist Party rule. And, you know, to a certain extent, I think he's probably right about that in that what does China stand for now? And what are Chinese values? They've struggled to find some alternative, and it's not very compelling or attractive to people. No, it's just sort of sensible technocratic management of a large party state. I mean, hardly a... It's not inspirational, (laughs) and it doesn't do much for the ordinary person in the street. Well, Jeremy, why don't you take that very last question, and then uh, we need to... to <clears throat> okay, um, Susan, so a recent Wall Street Journal editorial, Andrew Brown wrote, China sees an America squandering its most precious global asset, soft power. The party propagandists, so often the target of scorn on the Chinese internet, can hardly believe their good fortune. Um, does the Trump victory represent an opportunity for China to build something it has long lacked, genuine soft power? 
Well, I, I don't think so, because I think they have to figure out what they stand for. And, um, but if they relax this resistance to universal values, get back on a reform track, economic reform, as well as political reform, then sure. I mean, if, if we abdicate and if we alienate people and countries around the world by our actions, then, you know, if you're viewing this as a competition, a soft power competition, then obviously that's good, not good for us, very bad for us, for sure. So, you know, that's very sad. There were all these perceptions of America in decline after the global financial crisis. And old timers like me who lived through the 70s and 80s where people were saying a lot of the same thing because of the rise of Japan. And yet the Japanese economy floundered, the US economy was very resilient and recovered. So I think we thought, well, America is self-correcting, we're resilient, we're not in, in decline. But I have to say, I mean, if we pursue the kinds of policies that we have pursued for the last week of the first week of the Trump administration <laughs> and we continue these very radical approaches to the world, then this will certainly accelerate the decline of American leadership. And for those of us who are sort of good liberal internationalists, this is really a, a very worrisome time. Indeed it is. Susan Chirk, what a pleasure to have you, uh, to have you on Seneca at long last. Uh, and thank you for sharing your insight and your experience. We look forward to chatting with, with you again. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to reading both your, your forthcoming Foreign Affairs article, and uh, which will be published when? In early February, is that right? Yes. Uh, so And look for that. And of course, the look task for force. the task force report, which will be published on February 7th. And can I also uh, give some recommendations? Yeah, let's, we're going to hold on for the recommendations <laughs> section. Uh, let me first remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SupChina.com. You can follow SupChina on Twitter at, at SupChinaNews and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SupChinaNews. By all means, if you uh, like our podcast, please go and leave us a positive recommendation on, on uh, wherever it is that you go to download apps. We would be very, very grateful, and it really helps people to discover the podcast. So recommendations. We always start with Jeremy. Let's start with Jeremy. Why don't we right. Since we're in California, I'd like to actually just recommend visiting my new hometown of Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I found after I moved to the United States... I was amazed at how snobby most of my American friends were about the American South. And it's not quite as uh, what you may, may think of uh, if you haven't actually visited it. Um, another nice place is where Kaiser lives, Chapel Hill in North Carolina. Absolutely, yeah. Come out and visit. Yeah, absolutely. You're all welcome. Uh, please do, yeah. Please do. We'll have you uh, well, I'd like to uh, recommend the School of Global Policy and Strategy at University of California, San Diego, which is a wonderful place to study international affairs and public policy with a special focus on Asia for people interested in Asia, and a very strong group of China scholars in the 21st Century China Center. And 
go to the China Focus blog, which is the blog of the China students at UC San Diego, and China 21 podcast, uh, which is the 21st Century China Center podcast program. Yeah, we'll definitely have to check that out. I have actually not listened to the podcast, although I've seen uh, so Jack Jong and a couple of other people who work on, on the, the, the blog. It's terrific. Really, really good stuff. So my recommendation for this week is uh, a novel, a 2016 novel called The Sellout by Paul Beatty. I don't know. Has anyone read it yet? It won the Man Booker. It was actually the first American author. He was the first American author to win the Man Booker. It's... Uh, I think you'd have to class it as genre, uh, in terms of its genre as satire. It's a satire on, on race in America, written by, of course, a very prominent African-American writer. And it's just side-splittingly funny. It's just great. He also won the National Book uh, Critics Circle Award for 2016. So this is not exactly a controversial recommendation to make. It's just a great book, a uh, good antidote uh, to, to read in this troubling time. Uh, so please um, check it out. And uh, thanks again. I want to th- thank Susan once again. Thanks. And uh, we're, we're looking forward to seeing your output in the, the coming month. Thanks also so much to John Long and the Long Institute, to Jeff Wasserstrom, who I guess has just taken off to go teach a class, to Ben Van Rooij and Christine Zhao and all the other good folks here at UC Irvine who made our visit possible. Thanks very much. And let's hear it for, for Susan. Thanks. And we'll see you next week on the Cynical Podcast. Take care.